0: so wonderful you guys are such a beautiful group of people and you're so full of patience during these early days thank you for that ordinary folks would just pack up and say no way we're going somewhere that's got it all figured out and got it all together and it's got awesome professional check-in children's place where we can leave our kids and go but not you guys you guys are in the trenches with us come on. We're teaching our kids to be in the presence. We're teaching our kids to worship. We're teaching them to hear the Word and respond to the Word. We're not holding out for something better. This is the better. Um, I told you in a, in, a, in a newsletter email that we're kind of beginning to look at um, a series of, well, let me, let me, let me start over with this. Um, way back when, a few months ago, when we were praying through this this idea of a church and what God wanted for us and what what shape it would take and sort of what our unique role is in the world and um, three sort of our we had a threefold vision that emerged um, as to really what we felt God was calling us to do and we've announced that and you know it's on our website and you may have read over it and sort of keep coming back to this so I want to share those with you and then we're going to talk about one of those Um, pull up that first one Glenn if you would At King's Church, we dream of living out our mission in three distinct ways. Here's the first one, by being a worshiping family that hosts the Holy Spirit of God. That's what we want to be. We want this to be a family. We are a family. We've got brothers and sisters and moms and dads and kids, and everybody sort of is, is responsible for everybody else, right? You know, so uh, that's, that's, that's what we, we long to be, is a, is a family that comes together and worships and hosts the Holy Spirit of God Um, The second one is this, by being a house of prayer that awakens our generation for kingdom renewal. We, we, We long for that. We want to discover more and more the power of being a praying church. Not just as part of our liturgy and our worship, but being an interceding, travailing kind of church that sees kingdom breakthroughs when we pray. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we were known as the church that when King's Church prays, something happens? That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? To be to have that for the lord to have that kind of reputation where when the king people of king church come together things are going to happen no matter what that's awesome and the third third thing we dream of is by being uh, an apostolic mission that sends people out with power for ministry we want to be a sending church not just a sending church but an empowering and sending church we want every man woman boy and girl here to walk in supernatural ministry we think that's possible we think that is what God is offering to every believer in the world, is to walk in supernatural ministry, not just the, the grown ups, but our kids as well. So, but here's to this first thing is what we're looking at for the next number of weeks. being Becoming a church that hosts His presence. What does it mean to host the presence of God? What does it mean to, you know, and we say that, and even, even this week I'm wrestling over what does that really mean? You know, and I, I kind of begin to think through in my own life when i when i sensed that the presence of god was near me or with me or in me you know what, what did that mean and sometimes it was just a feeling that i had um, for example driving along in the car and just the, you know a worship song comes in that's very powerful and you just feel the love of god wash over you you feel it in your body and in your senses if i know what i'm talking about that that is in large measure, of what it, part of the presence of God inside of us is that we have this feeling of God's nearness. God, God moves through our senses. God moves through our body. We have these phenomenons that occur as God's way of connecting with us. Um, I also think that 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 becoming a church that hosts His presence means also that how we how we live in the world reflects His own character. In other words, we we mirror his values, we mirror his his holiness, we mirror his love for other people. The life that Jesus lived on the earth, we're now living in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we love one another. Um, so our behavior reflects his his character. I think another way that, that we can host his presence is by operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's that's something that that's that's a gift. Those are gifts that God has given the church to bring the presence of Jesus into the world in fresh ways. You know, so when we walk in the gifts in maturity and wisdom and faithfulness, in one sense, our church is hosting the presence that way. Um, so that's, that's, those are all some examples and we probably could come up with more of those, but I began to think, okay, what's, I want us to look biblically at, a, at, at the full picture of what it means for the people of God to host the presence of God. And it's possible to be a church without this. They're everywhere. A lot in America are devoid of the presence of God. It's possible to really be a follower, it's possible to be a believer in Jesus and really not have the presence of God dwelling in you. But that's not what we want, right? That's not what God calls us to. That's not what we're, we're aiming for. We're aiming for it in its fullness. What does it mean? So we're gonna, there's going to be five weeks to this starting today, five, five parts of this called indwelling, looking at the biblical understanding of the, the, the presence of God. We're going to start this week with the Old Testament and look at that. Next week, we're going to look at, at the, the, the presence of God the presence of God in the ministry of Jesus. How did Jesus, how did the presence of God operate through the ministry of Jesus? The third, third week, we're going to look at Acts and the early church and what, what did that mean for them? Um, and then the last two weeks are going to be more sort of for us here and now in our culture, in our context. How do we host the presence? What does that look like? All right? So I, I told some of you on Friday just that the Lord really pointed me back. I was praying this, you know, what do we need to teach from in these early months? And the Lord said, "Go back to why you're here. Go back to what the vision is. Vision is to be a place that hosts a host of presence. So, we're going to jump into that. And um, I want to give you a warning that we're kind of we're, we're we're over a number of different parts in the Old Testament. I promise it's not going to be that way all the time. There will be many, many." Uh, messages where we zero in on one book and passage, and we chew our way through that. But this is not one of those. We're all over the place. So if you have a Bible or an app, um, I'm going to try to let let you track along. We're also going to put it up here as we go through this. So let's pray together, and then we're just going to jump in, and I'll I'll kind of tell you where we're going. So Lord, we're endeavoring to do a difficult thing, and that's to, to understand in full measure what Your Word says about You and Your heart for us. So, Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts. Our, our, our fleshly, earthly reading of the Word is not enough. We need illumination by You. We need the words to come alive and You to, to give revelation to us as to where Your heart is. So, do that. We open, we open our hearts and our minds up, Lord, for You to do that. Amen. Okay, so there's really four, four ideas that I want to tell you about um, when it comes to the hosting the presence in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the presence of God, as it's, as it's moving in the people, begins in one book. It begins in the book of Exodus. And I love the book of Exodus. I've told you this before. I love it because it's like a snapshot of like God's plan of salvation start to finish. Right, Like if you were stranded on a desert island and you didn't have anything else, any of the other Old Testament books, I think you could take Exodus alone and get a good idea of what God's going to do. It's, it's, it's a snapshot of, of His plan of redemption. It begins, of course, with people in slavery, people in captivity. They're in the land of Egypt. They're you know, toiling under, under the sun and making bricks and all this stuff. And the, the, the lash of the whip is upon them. And all of a sudden, God raises up a deliverer. Who comes in and, 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 and frees the people. And God supernaturally brings these plagues. And the people leave, right? And they cross over. And they um, the, the the death angel passes over. Uh, and they go and they cross over the Red Sea. And they're moving into, um, into the wilderness. Um, into the desert. And there they're kind of thinking, great. Now what do we do? Right? What do we do, Moses? You know, we, we were over here and God's let us out. And now we're kind of waiting in that. Um, so... Here's, here's the first point. In the Old Testament, God's presence was physically represented. And the more I understand about the nature of, of God, God is so gracious and He's so patient. And He'll do whatever it takes to teach us these transcendent truths in our own language. And I think that's the whole point of, of, of the physical representation of God. God. Keep in mind that for the ancient people of of Israel who came out of Egypt, all they could understand about the gods was limited to shape and size. You know, there, there was no such thing as an invisible God who was omnipotent and, and omnipresent and everywhere. They, you, had a, you had, you know, a God who was the God, of the, the, the God of the sun or this God who was in the shape of a bull or a God who was in the shape of a frog and, you know, a God who was over here in the shape of whatever else. And that's, that's kind of what, how they begin to think is that if there's a God, what does He look like? How do we see Him? How do we interact with Him? How do we come and offer our sacrifices to Him if we can't see Him? We, we have to put our hands. That explains the whole golden calf thing. The people weren't wanting to worship a different God. They wanted to worship Yahweh, but they didn't know what Yahweh looked like. They needed something to help connect the dots. So they went to Aaron and said, let's let's, let's give Yahweh Yahweh a body. Let's give Him a form. And Aaron says, okay, so they do that. But in the Old Testament, God's presence was physically represented. God knew that at this stage in their understanding, they need something physical to see, to say, ah there is where God dwells. God understood that limitation. So at the end of Exodus, He gives these instructions for building the tabernacle. Very detailed instructions. And if you read through the entire book, the book of Exodus ends like this. Let's read Exodus 40. I love that. Scrolling thing, that's cool. Yeah, I didn't do that. <laughs> um, so so the last chapters of Exodus describe in great detail all of the the all that goes into the manufacturing of the tabernacle. God gives explicit blueprints. The width and the height and what things are to be made of and what it looks like and how it's to be decorated and all the, all the accoutrements that go inside of there. And, and Moses and the people follow it uh, to the exact letter. And at the very end of the book, it says this, that Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up a curtain at the entrance to the courtyard, and so Moses finished the work. So Moses puts that final curtain in place and he ties that final tassel and he steps back maybe he's waiting maybe he's like okay now what do we do the people are watching and it says this then the cloud covered the tent of meeting the cloud had been leading them up to this point again physical representation the cloud and the fire at night cloud by day fire by night had been leading them And all of a sudden, the cloud covers over the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I'd love to know more what that meant. What does that mean for the glory of the Lord to fill the tabernacle? Does that mean this cloud just descended and consumed this this tent that they made? We don't know. But we know that the book of Exodus ends this way the people are brought out of captivity, and God descends down into their midst to take up residence in this tent don't miss that don't miss what that means that means that the point of god's plan in your life is not just deliverance from something but it's his presence in the midst of wherever you are that's why god delivers us anyway it wasn't enough just to bring them out god could have just brought them out dropped them in the desert and say there you go if you need anything let me know it wasn't enough just to give them the law. He could have stopped at Exodus 19 after he brings the law of Sinai. He said, okay, I brought you out. Here's what you need to do. Don't mess up. That wasn't enough either. His presence in their midst was his heart, his design all along. So even in the very beginning of the, uh, of the Old Testament, we need to realize this is, this is pretty crucial to, what, to what's happening. So fast forward several hundred years. The people of Israel have now conquered Canaan. They've gone into the promised land. And they've established, set up their nation. And God has raised up a king. And David comes along. And David is a man after God's own heart. And David is just longs for the things of God. And he looks around and of course, David by this point in history has dominated as a leader, as a, as a military strategist, as a king among people. And he looks around at everything that he's made, all of his house, and he says to himself, this is not right that I live in this and God lives in that. And he points to the the tabernacle. That's That's what they have. They still have this. It's not right that I should live this kind of lavish life and God is in that little place. And he goes to God and says, God, I want to do this. And God says, it's ironic that you want to build a house for me because I'm actually going to build a house from you. And he begins this covenant relationship. And he says, David, I'm going to make of your name and of your family a kingdom and a nation. And the king will always be on the throne. And, And then the Lord says, You're not going to build a home for me, someone else will. Your son will, but you're not going to do it. But you need to know that a greater house is going to be built than the one that you have in mind. And so that's what happens. Solomon comes along and Solomon, you know, of course, has just tree. He inherits his father's empire. And he inherits his father's wealth. And Solomon begins to accumulate more and more and more and more and more wealth and more wisdom and more power and more influence. And the nations of the earth are coming, flocking to Solomon to see what what is going on. And, And Solomon just dreams about building this temple. For the Lord. So he does that. 480 years later, after they come out of Egypt, Solomon's temple is completed and they bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the temple, into the holy place. So let's read here is 1 Kings 6:1 says this. It says, In the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. And go on to the next verse there in 1 Kings. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. The Lord said, as for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep all of my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people so God comes and says David or Solomon I want to make the same promise to you he says it's awesome that you want to build a place for me I don't have a problem with that but don't forget what the with what, what, what the point of this relationship is I don't need a house what I need is covenant faithfulness with you and the people so if you want to do this that's fine walk in faithfulness for me and everything is going to go great Keep on going. So Solomon built the temple. Oh, I guess I didn't add it in. Um, scroll back one. So Solomon built the temple and it goes on to explain how, how, power, how, how amazing it was. I was reading a little bit of this, in, this last week about the sheer scope of this. And that's point two, is number, is number two. It's placement, design, and function reflected God's absolute holiness. So this is a symbol. This is an object lesson. This is a physical representative of God's presence. So from the very beginning, this is different. This is not like anything else the Israelites have ever seen. And he gives great detail in Exodus about how to build it, what it's made of. It's made of the finest material. It's woven together with, with just incredible craftsmanship. The Bible tells us um, when Solomon builds his temple, it lists every. everything every detail of what's made you know that he uses 23 tons of gold in the most holy place alone think about that 23 tons of gold just in the holy place of the tabernacle every single thing was overlaid with gold everything freestanding was made of gold it's just it's mind-boggling and you can kind of kind of go and google you know what what was the value of solomon's temple and some people are putting into the billions of dollars of what it actually would the value of what he put into that it's phenomenal and 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 for the for the for the for the early generations the tabernacle was situated right in the middle of the camp with the different tribes camping out to the left, into the right, or to the north, the south, the east, and the west, and the tabernacle. When, when it comes time to build the temple, the temple is built on the highest place in the land, a center of uh, prominence, as if to say, God is at the center of who you are. God is at the highest place. His dwelling place is in the midst of you, at its highest place, and it was absolutely sacred. Everything about the tabernacle was sacred. Everything about the temple was sacred. Look at 1 Kings 8. Look at what it says here in 1 Kings 8.10. It says this. This. I hope I put it in. There you go. (laughs) When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. Now, I, I should have included this one right here, but it may not, so we're not going to skip ahead, Glenn, in case I didn't do it right. Is it on there? Or no, it's not. Okay, so it's, it's real gray, but i want to read it. Listen to this. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, this is in, the, t- the, this is in the, the, the temple, after they've consecrated, dedicated, they brought the Ark of the Covenant in, Solomon is there, thousands of people there, all the sacrifices, thousands of animals are being sacrificed. It's just this mind-boggling experience. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, in other words, when the people stepped out of this, the cloud filled the temple of God, and the priest didn't—you can't see it—but it says, "And the priest could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple." It's awesome. That's so amazing that just, you know, the, the priests, they're, they're ready to do their thing. It's like when we get up here and we kind of do our thing, and Brian's, you know, prepared over here on the piano, and, you know, Meg's got her stuff, and I'm ready to go. And, you know, all of a sudden the glory of the Lord is so heavy that none of us get to do anything. That's how it is. When, when, the, when, when the Lord fills the temple, the cloud, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God is so permeating everything that nobody can see or move. And the priests say, We don't we don't know what to do we can't do anything we can't move we can't we can't make sacrifices we can't make it we can't do any of this stuff because the presence of god is so heavy and so thick here so it's placement it's design it's function god is absolutely holy god is absolutely sacred even even the ark of the covenant the small box on poles you know back when they, they didn't really have the temple set up all they had was this ark but this ark was god's presence it went wherever they went. It led the way in the battle. It went before the armies went. The presence of God always goes before, but it was so sacred it couldn't be touched at all. you got the poles. You can't touch it. And one guy comes along and all, you know, it's, it's riding on the back. You know the story. It's riding on the back of a cart. And it, the, something stumbles and the ark begins to slide out and fall off. And this well-meaning guy, you know, he, he reaches out and he touches it to, to sort of stabilize it. And he falls over dead. How unfair is that? God is saying that my presence is absolutely sacred. Absolutely holy. Even the priest can't be in here when I come down. And because of that, number three, it's neglect and defilement revealed corrupted hearts. So if the the temple represents God's covenant love, it represents His promise, I'm going to be your God no matter what. I'm going to fight your battles no matter what. I'm going to provide for you no matter what. You're going to be great among the nations of the world no matter what. I'm going to bless the world through you no matter what. All I ask is that you honor my presence, keep my law, walk in faithfulness with me. And here's how you do that. You honor Me in the temple with sacrifice and with worship. And the people would say, yay, we can do that. Sure. That's what they did when Solomon was there. Yay, we can do that. Our God's awesome. But it's not very long, several generations later, when the temple begins to be defiled, when the the, the kings of Israel Begin to say, eh, we're not gonna just, we're not gonna be exclusive. We're not gonna be monogamous in this relationship. Because we sure do love all that Baal has to offer. We sure do love all that Molech has to offer. We sure do love all that Ashereth has to offer. We can't just be exclusive to these. What would our neighbors think? What would our neighbors say? We're gonna look weird. We've got this beautiful temple. It's okay. We can kind of put up a pole right up here for Asherah and kind of offer some sign. God's not going to mind. We're enlightened. And so the kings of Israel begin to defile the temple and defile themselves. 2 Chronicles 24 talks about offerings being made to Baal, the Canaanite god of storms. Imagine that. Imagine if David saw this. Sacrifices in the holy place being made to this idolatrous God. 2 Chronicles 26 talks about King Uzziah who takes it upon himself to offer up incense to the Lord. Doesn't matter that he's not a priest, doesn't matter that he's not consecrated by God for this. Uzziah thinks, oh, I'm a king. Surely I have some leeway here. Surely God won't mind. A few chapters later, 2 Chronicles 33 talks about King Manasseh who sets up pagan altars inside the temple as well. And it's not just one or two isolated incidents. It's time after time after time. It's generation after generation after generation. And the temple is defiled and ceremonial sacrifices are lost. And by the time that King Josiah comes along, there is no known law of God. Nobody could tell you what the commandments of God are. Nobody could tell you what the ten. We heard about that. I think I heard my great grandfather talk about that. And it's absolute corruption absolute defiled hearts lead to a defilement of the temple and jeremiah then comes along one of the prophets he says this in 20 in in, in chapter 23 says the land is full of adulterers because of the curse the land lies parched and the pastures in the wilderness are withered the prophets follow an evil course and use their power unjustly both prophet and priest are godless even in my temple i find their wickedness declares the lord You know, I, I wish I could, this week I was just trying to think, I was trying to think of you know, what modern, what's analogous in my own life to this kind of depravity and this kind of defilement. It's hard to think about it. You know, I, all I could think of is, is my wedding ring and it's, it's not a temple at all, but it's a symbol. This is a symbol of covenant love. I wear this on my finger because I love my wife and I'm committed to her. This ring doesn't make me married, but taking it off does not make me not married. There's nothing magical about this ring, but it's a symbol of it, so I wear it as a symbol. One thing I think of is that's analogous to this: is is if I just you know if I if I begin with depravity of heart to live a lifestyle of unfaithfulness to Megan. You know, and I take off my ring and I throw it in the car as I jet off to meet up with a mistress. And I come back and I put my ring on. Oh, baby girl, hi. Hug my wife, hug my kids. The next day, sneak out, take my ring, throw it away, go do my thing, come back. Even that pales in comparison with what's happening with the temple, with the presence of God and how it's been defiled time after time after time after time. And so, what does God do? God says, you're going to corrupt my temple. You're going to corrupt my symbol. You're going to corrupt and defile my presence. I'm going to take it away from you. So number four, it's destruction. Hinted that something greater was needed. So let's read 2 Kings. This is the end of the, this is the, end of the story for Kings. 2 Kings 25 says this, So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, by the way, this is in the time of the divided kingdom. The ten tribes in the north had separated shortly after Solomon and became the kingdom of Israel. And the two tribes in the south became the kingdom of Judah. They had two separate kings, two separate capitals, two separate armies. And by this point, the northern kingdom had been wiped off the map by the nation of Assyria. And all that's left is the nation of Judah in the south. Fast forward several hundred years, they're not doing much better. you think they would learn from their neighbors in the north to follow God's covenant law. They're not learning it. They're not doing it. They're not walking in families. They're still practicing idolatry. And God says, okay, judgment is coming your way as well. And it says, in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the 11th year of Zedekiah. Let's keep going. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Though the Babylonians were surrounding the city, they fled toward the Arabah, Let's keep on going. But the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him on the plains of Jericho. This is bad news. All of his soldiers were separated from him and scattered and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. They put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. On the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th years of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon... Nebuzaradan, commander of the Imperial Guard, an official of the King of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. Here we go. He set fire to the Temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the Imperial imperial Guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the Guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. So after centuries of idolatry, God finally says enough, enough of this. You broke my covenant law again and again and again. You defiled my holy place again and again and again. Judgment's coming, judgment is coming and it does. And God raises up the Babylonian army that come in Destroy Jerusalem, ransack it, raise it to the ground, burn the crops, burn the vineyards, tear down the walls, strip the temple of whatever is left, and burn, and, and just leave it as rubble. And so this is, a, this is a heavy place where the people of Israel find themselves during this time during these 70 years of exile in Babylon. And they're wondering to themselves what went wrong. I thought we were God's people. I thought we were special. I thought we were set apart. I thought God had made a covenant promise that a king would always sit on David's throne. Where did we go wrong? They begin to question their, themselves. and begin to question God. And by the, time, by the time that God releases them to come back, by the time God releases them to come back, many have given up. Many have no interest in in restoring anything. No interest in rebuilding the wall. No interest in rebuilding the temple. Why bother? Why bother? And God raises up prophets. Raises up men like Ezra and Nehemiah. Raises up prophets. Haggai, Zechariah, Ezekiel. To begin to speak now a word of redemption to the people. And they call them to begin to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. And here's, here's the interesting dichotomy. On the one hand, the prophets know that the temple itself is not the point. They know that. They know that the old covenant is not enough. Doing the sacrifices is not enough. Something greater is needed. But until that greater thing comes, They also know that the people still needed the symbol. They still needed the ring on their finger. They still needed to look and to say, God is there. We are still His people. He is still in our midst. God is still on His throne. God still has a plan for us. So the prophets begin to say, come on, Ezra and Nehemiah begin to say, let's go, let's rebuild the wall. Let's rebuild it. Let's do this. God has not abandoned us. He has chastised us. He has punished us, but He has not finished with us. So the people come together and they rebuild the wall and they rebuild the temple. Even after the temple is rebuilt, things aren't the same. The symbol is restored. But there's a fundamental problem then that, Sort of emerges is this? How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? That's what the prophets begin to the people begin to wrestle with. They begin to ask, how, how, how do we do this? How does this cycle get broken? How do we have? The holy presence of God in our midst without it destroying us because left to ourselves, we just keep doing these things over and we keep defiling ourselves. And the prophets, by God's Spirit, knew the answer, they knew the solution. They knew that a new covenant was needed, a new place for the Spirit to dwell besides fabric and pole, besides stone. Besides a holy place that only the few could go into, the prophets knew something needed to be different. God doesn't want us to be limited to this box on poles. He wants to be in you and I and all of us. And so we, we, you know, we, we've got the fortune of seeing all of this with 2,000 years of clarity, right? You know, we, 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 have the, we have the benefit of looking at the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We can see all of this together by God's grace, and we can really say, you know, like, we, we know that more was needed. But at the time, the people didn't know. They felt hopeless. And Ezekiel comes along. I love Ezekiel. He is one of those who has been taken off into exile. He's one of those who are, are, are captured and carried off to Babylon. But he hears God's voice and he begins to prophesy. And this is what he says in Ezekiel 36. He says this, "Therefore, say This is what God says to Ezekiel. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things. And he has just finished unpacking all the things that he's going to do. All the good things that God's going to do. God's talking about restoration. You know, He says, it's not for your sake that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean." The only sprinkling done up until this point has been the sprinkling upon the altar by the priests. But God says, oh no, there's going to be a new sprinkling now. Now I'm going to put the water upon you. You now are going to be clean. You now are going to be consecrated. He says, I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And friends, this is, this is revolutionary. This is groundbreaking for people. As they're sitting in exile, the, 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 the smell of smoke still in their nostrils, the fear and the horror of what has happened still in their hearts, This word comes to them and says, God is going to give us a new heart and a new spirit. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. And God says, guys, I got a whole different plan. That plan didn't work. But it was never meant to i was never meant to stay in this box in these walls i'm meant to be inside of every single one of you that law doesn't need to be carved on stone tablets that law needs to be carved in my in our heart and so Big idea is this of this first part. The tabernacle and the temple were object lessons that point to God's heart. That's all they were. They were imperfect and they were temporary, but they showed us God's heart. They showed us, number one, that He wants to be right where we are. He doesn't want to be way up there in the cosmos, way up there in the heavenlies without any kind of proximity to us. He wants to be just here in the mud, in the dirt where we are. But He can't be here in His full holy character until we are able to host His holiness. And a sinful people cannot host a holy God. Ice can't host fire. I was driving this morning and coming up Brandon Road and looking at the sun. you know, It, it was coming up over the horizon. It was a ball of white. I began to think about that part of the word that says, "You shine like the sun in all of its strength." I just thought, how, how precarious we are on this planet. What Some 80 million miles away, is that right? Science people, I don't know, but a few million miles closer, and we're going to burn up. And I just think about, and I just begin to think. The Lord said, "You know, that's that sun is just one small spark of my glory, one small spark of my holiness. That pales in comparison to my glory that is 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 coming and resting upon people." So that's that that's it. Physical space wasn't enough. God wants to be here. Brian, come on up. Brian may have disappeared. It's all right. We'll call him back up there. You know, so think about that in light of today and in light of buildings and in light of tabernacles and temples and all the things that we think are supposed to contain the presence of god remind ourselves this is not it that's not it god does not does not dwell in a house made by human hands and next week we're going to look at the person of jesus and the gospel of john begins this way the beginning was the word and the word became flesh it goes on to say and that he made his tent he pitched a tent among us That's what it says. He tabernacled with us is how John describes the person of Jesus. So in the shadow of this empty temple, the Word is made flesh. And all of a sudden, the presence of God now is shifting. Everything changes, right? Let's pray together. We're going to worship. We're going to do some ministry here. Um, let's just listen for a minute. Let me hear what the Lord is saying. um I sense that maybe the Lord is just uh he wants to clarify. that His presence and His promise to dwell is not arbitrary. It doesn't come and go. It's not dependent upon our feeling. It's not dependent upon our behavior. The sense the Lord's saying is that the challenge is that Our minds are distracted and our hearts are distracted. And we're crowding out the sense of His presence. Okay, maybe the Lord's saying that to me. I I won't project that upon you. Since the Lord is saying, rest. Stop. Rest. Open up your heart. Open up your minds to the descending glory of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Open up your eyes. The Lord says... We're surrounded. We're indwelt. Father, we love Your presence. We do. We need Your presence. We honor Your presence this morning. We don't We don't uh, hurry it along. We say come and be here and do what you want to do. Forgive us, Lord, for being so busy this week and not resting in you.